And thank you for coming to church tonight. Man, another fabulous crowd. This is a great church. You've been faithful. I appreciate it. We have a guest here from Kentucky. I hope that's all right. <laughs> I've noticed people in Ohio are a little more kind to the states south of them than north of them. <laughs> I don't have an issue with it. My mother was born in Lexington, Kentucky. My grandfather lived on Vine Street down by the Cincinnati Zoo. And uh, my, my grandmother's people, my great-grandfather lived there, my grandmother's father, my grandmother's people lived across the river in uh, Covington and Newport. So I, I, I'm fine. I like being in Ohio. My brother Bobby Adams is here. Where'd you go, Brother Adams? There he is. Moved you over there, and I moved over here. And he came down from Brother Schelling's church, Northern Kentucky Baptist Church, a great church. And thank you, Brother, for being here. Open your Bibles to Joshua. Joshua chapter 6. Joshua judges Ruth, and Ruth does not judge anybody. <laughs> Stand with me if you would. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, watch this, see, I have given into thine hand Jericho, king thereof, the mighty men of valor. I love it when God speaks of a future event in the past tense. Jericho is still going about their business. Not one person has died. Not one stone has fallen out of the wall. Not one soldier has been taken captive. But God said, I have given Jericho to you, a church. When God makes a promise, it is as certain that it will take place as if it had already happened. That's why the moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God gave you everlasting life. Now, I don't want to get real theological. But if it doesn't last forever, it's not everlasting. Okay, is that too deep for anybody? But if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, it's as sure that you'll be in heaven someday as if you're already there. And the Lord said, You shall compass the city, verse 3, all you men of war. Go around about the city once. Thus shall I do six days. And verse 5, it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. The wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Verse 10. And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make, listen to any noise with your voice. Can't talk, can't shout, can't go. Can't go. Can't go. 
neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth. Unto the day I bid you shout, then shall you shout. And uh, verse 20, so the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it came to pass, when the people heard the shout of the trumpets, the people shouted with the, uh, the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted with a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Lord, as far as I know, I'm at the place in your book where you want me to be for tonight. I pray that you'd use this sermon in ways I could never have imagined were necessary. I pray that you'd use it now and use it in our lives in the future. I pray that all of us would hear gladly and respond willingly. I ask you to bind Satan and the unclean spirits that serve him and help us to be open to all you have in Jesus' name. Bless the preaching. Bless the invitation we ask. Amen. May we see it. Amazing victory. But one of our problems if we've been saved a while is we think we know these stories and we don't pay attention to them. And we really miss what's there. Now, we're not as bad as the new pastor I heard about. He hadn't been in church for a couple of weeks and one Sunday he stopped in a fourth, fifth grade boys class, and the teacher hadn't come yet, and he said, well, boys, thought he'd say the word, say yet, he said, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And one little boy said, not me, preacher. <laughs> Another boy said, me neither. Another boy said, I didn't do it. Well, he's quite concerned. He went to the teacher, he said, I asked your boys, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? They all said they didn't do it. The teacher said, well, preacher, I know you're new here, but these are good boys. And if they told you they didn't knock down the walls, I would believe them. He's really bothered now. So he calls the deacons together, and he tells them what happened. And one of the deacons said, ah, preacher, we got plenty of money. Let's just pay to fix the walls. We're not that bad, but I want to illustrate for you. So did you get an idea of what's going on? I would like several young men to volunteer to help me. All right, good, you come. You want to come? You want to come? Good. You want to come? All right. Anybody else? Don't leave anybody out. You don't have to, but you can volunteer. These guys are the army. I'm Joshua. Guys, see that big old city over there, Jericho? See that? See those walls around that city? They're so thick, two chariots can sit next to each other on top of them. At the base, they're even wider, and houses have been built in the base of the walls. God is going to give us that city. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> All right. Yeah, you're, you're about as excited as a Presbyterian who just took a sleeping pill. And God's given me a plan. Here's what we're going to do. Whole army, everybody in the army. We're going to march around the city. 
Now you can't talk. You can't let any word proceed out of your mouth. You can't make any noise with your voice. So uh, go back to about go back to about behind where where the preacher's wife and Brother Wally are sitting, and let that, that section of pews. Let that be the city of Jericho. Go ahead and march. Go ahead, march. Don't meander. March. Come on. You're making the sermon longer. Pick it up a little bit. Boom, boom, boom. There we go. One, two, three, four. Now, what do you think they're thinking when they march around the city? They come back, and the second day, whole army, guys, see that big city over here, Jericho? See those middle walls? God has given me a plan. He's going to make those walls down flat. And the plan for today is, um, um, do you remember yesterday's plan? It's sort of like yesterday's plan, except that uh, it's exactly the same. Go ahead and do it again. <laughs> Maybe the first day they're thinking, well, he's going to ask us what we saw, who was observant, where the walls are weak, where the guards are not paying attention. He's going to have us do reconnaissance, but he doesn't. They come back after the second day, and he says, do it again. I wonder what happens when they go home. Little boy, Daddy, you went out in the army today? Yes, son, I did. Daddy, what'd you do? Did you fight a soldier? Did you win a battle? Well, son, there's something young ears shouldn't hear. Let's just say I fully discharged my duties today. And they go around on the third day. Same day. Is it third or fourth? Fourth, fourth day. I think by now the people in Jericho are watching them. I think they're laughing. I think they're saying, hey, here comes that one with the big ears. I think their wives are saying, go ahead, guys, do it again. Number five. Hey, why is all I got to go around that city and do nothing? That doesn't make any sense. Why, there are things in this tent that have needed to be fixed for 40 years. And you're just out there marching around. Why is all I go? And uh, guys, do it again. <laughs> and why can't they talk? I mean, they're, they're like a bunch of Christian school kids on bathroom break. What harm would it do if they said, how you doing? I was the wife. How's the kids? And they come back after the sixth day. And Joshua says, guys, today is different. Today, we're going to march around seven times. <laughs> but on the seventh time, when I tell you, you get to shout. Isn't that exciting? I think you get the idea. Then they do a great job. Give my hand. See, uh, see Pastor Josh afterwards. He'll give you each twenty bucks, maybe. Thank you guys. Now, why did they have to do that? The liberals have an explanation. Liberals are stupid people. You say. Theological liberals or political liberals? Yes. <laughs> they say that the vibration of the soldiers marching around time after time weakened the foundation and the walls just naturally fell down. Well, your walls are not 
thick enough for two chariots to rest on top of. They are not thick enough that people build houses in the basins. But I'll promise you, get any army you want. Have a march around your building 13 times, and it will not fall down. Sure. I heard about a liberal Sunday school teacher. Liberals are stupid people. Their explanations make no sense. And uh, she was teaching the children about the children who were crossing the Red Sea, but she said it wasn't really the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. See, God is not capable of getting it right. So we have to correct it for him. It was the Reed Sea, and it was a marshy area, and they had about 18 inches of water. And it had been dry, a lot of wind been blowing, and that's how they got across. The voice said, wow, what a miracle. No miracle, son. Wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. 18 inches of water. Yeah, what a miracle. Wasn't a miracle. Only 18 inches of water. It was windy that year. Yeah, what a miracle, son. Why do you keep saying that? He said, imagine all Pharaoh's armies drowning in 18 inches of water. What a miracle. Now, God could have knocked the walls down the first time they marched. God could have knocked the walls down without anybody marching. So why did he make them do that? And why did he record in pretty exact detail for us the circumstances of them Conquering the city of Jericho. I want to talk to you tonight about lessons from Jericho. Number one, the Christian life is a life of routine. True. March around and 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 around. Thirteen times. I love meetings like this. I'm privileged to preach in them all the time. I love church. I love big meetings where thousands of God's people gather and sing as if with one voice. The Spirit of God works in a great way. But the Christian life is not mostly big meetings. It's not mostly special meetings. It's not mostly church. And the Christian life is you get up in the morning, read your Bible. You go to work, ask the Spirit of God to fill you and use you, direct you and be a good testimony. You go home, eat dinner if you haven't, you have family devotions, you haven't read the Bible in the morning, read it at night. Go to bed, you get up, you read the Bible, go to work, try to be a good testimony, come home, have dinner, have family devotions, read the Bible if you haven't, go to bed, get up in the morning, read your Bible, go to work, try to be a good testimony. Come home, grab dinner, go to church. Say, that doesn't sound very exciting. No, but your success or failure as a child of God will not be determined by how loud you shout in an exciting meeting. It will not be determined by how happy you are when the choir sings or the special music comes or the preacher gives a great truth from the Word of God. Your success or failure in the Christian life is directly related to how well you do 
in the routine responsibilities of the child of God. Our church was blessed. Boy, sometimes we got stuck. We got stuck at eight or nine hundred. Four years. One year, eight eighty next year. Average nine twelve next year. Eight seventy next year. Nine oh five. Say, what'd you do? Well, we went to this expensive seminar and we paid these consultants. No, we didn't. You know, we did. She just kept marching around. Just kept knocking on doors, kept having church, kept trying to win people to Christ, kept trying to train people to serve God, kept preaching the word of God, kept trying to do what God told us to do, kept running the buses. And one year, we went over a 1,000. In fact, we went from 9-something to 11-something. Didn't go back down to about 100,000 again. You see, if you don't know what to do, just keep marching around. It's a life routine number two. Christian life's a life of faith. This was a rather dumb plan. As a matter of fact, it looks to me like it invited the attack of the enemy. If I'm in Jericho and I know Israel's going to come and try to conquer me, about the second or third day, I'm going to start dropping stuff on their heads. I'm going to start shooting arrows down there. They're just marching round and round and round. You see, there are so many things in the Christian life that never make sense to the natural man. And you'll only do them because you believe God knows what he's talking about. If you're having trouble getting by financially, God says, well, better give some money away. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Right. He says the tithe belongs to him, but you ought to give above that. We pay our tithes. The tithe is the Lord. We give gifts in addition to that. And when you get in trouble, you need more money. God says, give some away. That doesn't make any sense. I know. It only works if you believe God. Right. I'll tell you what. If you have everything figured out in your life, if everything you're doing fits in the budget and fits in the schedule and can be answered by human reasoning, you are not pleasing God. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. And God always asks us to step out of our comfort zone and do things we're not sure we could ever do. Christian life's a life of faith. And sometimes the things he tells us to do make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Christian life's a life of routine. Christian life's a life of faith. Christian life is a life of obedience. Hey, guys, why don't you all come out? March around. Can't talk, can't make any noise with your voice. Can't let any word proceed out of your mouth. Why? Well, you remember how Joshua, we read about it. He clearly explained the reason for those rules. You remember that? You remember that? You don't remember that? It's not there. 
never told them why. He just told them what. Uh, can I tell you, if I were God, I would do things differently. I think the way we baptize is pretty awkward. You want people to go up in front of the whole church, go up there and get completely underwater. Why? Do you know what that does to a woman's mascara? <laughs> and anymore, you may have to worry about a man's mascara. <laughs> you know how embarrassing that is. One time, we found out that the little kids are going home and they're saying uh, that when they rode in that bus, don't go to that church. They make you go in a room, take all your clothes off, and go underwater naked in front of everybody. <laughs> now, we never did that. But I think the Lutherans might be on to something. I mean, you got one ordinance, symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection. This one could symbolize the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit and just go poop. Be so much easier, poop. I mean, uh, you'd run the van through a car wash, count them all as baptisms. <laughs> the first three rows would be baptisms every time I preached. I think the way we go soul when he's kind of dumb. We knock on the door of absolute strangers. And we'd say, hey, we want to tell you about somebody who used to, well, he was always alive, but but then he was born, even though he was always alive, he's God, he became man, and then he died, and now he's alive again. And if you trust him, you can go to heaven. Right. Maybe the friendship evangelism people had a point. You got to take six months to get to know him first. That doesn't make any sense. I think the way we do church is dumb. You know what we do in church, especially our crowd. We get everybody together on Sunday morning, and then we tell them what's wrong with them. <laughs> then we get them back together Sunday night, and we really tell them what's wrong with them on Sunday night. <laughs> then we get to come on Wednesday night. And we tell them some more things wrong with them. And we ask for 10% of their gross income for the privilege of being fussed at three times a week. Maybe the progressives are right. Maybe uh, people have fragile psyches and they don't want to hear anything negative. And we just ought to tell them everything's wonderful. God loves you. You don't have to fix or change anything. A lot of things in the Bible I think are wrong. Why? Um, I would disagree with. I understand the Bible. Anything your preacher says different, he's right and I'm wrong. I understand the Bible to teach that the only reason a person can divorce their spouse is that their spouse has been unfaithful to them and committed adultery. I think a woman whose husband keeps beating her ought to be able to ditch him. By the way, I don't think this will affect anybody here. I have no respect for any man who abuses their wife. None. I had a lady in our church. She's in heaven now. She was a widow lady. used to watch our daughter when she was young, older daughter, and then she married a guy she probably shouldn't have married, and he beat her. They called me one morning from the police. Since you want me to come by, I ran over there. It was about six in the morning, and 
she's sitting in the back of a squad car, huddling in a torn house dress, trying to stay decent. Her husband had beaten her again. I said to the police officer, where is he right now? Well, they said he's at the house. I said, could I have a few moments alone with him? And the police officer said, go right ahead, reverend. I'm not a reverend, but that's what he said. And I, I, I probably shouldn't have done it. I went in the house. I called that man every name I could think of that wasn't a cuss word. <laughs> and well, I wouldn't have said a cuss word if you'd have written one on paper. I'd have signed it. <laughs> I told him he was a coward, scum, no good, low down, worthless, sorry excuse for a man. And I did that because I wanted him to hit me. Because I wanted an excuse to hit him. Now, I probably was in the flesh. But to be honest, I've never been deeply convicted about it yet. <laughs> now, to be very clear, a wife whose husband puts her or her children in danger should do what David did when Saul was trying to kill him. He stayed completely loyal, and he ran away. Here's a Bible principle you can use the rest of your life. If you know somebody is planning to kill you, try not to be there when it happens. <laughs> but I think that lady out there say, done with you, bozo. But I want to tell you something. Every time God and I have a different opinion, God is right, and I am wrong. And every time God and you have a different opinion, God is right, and you are wrong. And I'll tell you why we baptize by immersion, and why we present all the gospel we can, everybody we can, as soon as we can, and why we come to church and lift our voice like a trumpet and cry aloud and spare not and show God's people their sins. I'll tell you why. A wife whose husband beats her is not allowed to divorce him. I'll give you the reason. Because God said so. Christian life's a life of obedience. See, we think once we understand, we will obey. But the Bible says, commit thy works to the Lord and thy thoughts shall be established. You'll never understand tithing until you tithe. You'll never understand soul winning until you go soul winning. A life of faith will never make any sense to you until you step out and live by faith. Christian life's a life of obedience. And a Christian life is a life of discipline. Man, you gotta march, you gotta not talk, you gotta not shout. We'll tell you when to shout, we'll tell you what to do. You just keep marching around. Now, I have found everybody loves discipleship. We have a ministry for addicts at our church. And uh, we have a housing ministry that comes to about six months, we work with them. And we tell them, we have an organized program, we have a great curriculum. But this is not about a program, it's about a person. 
His name is Jesus. about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And guys will call up and say, hey, I want to get in the discipleship program. Now, when they come, they find out that for one month, we take their cell phone. And they can have no contact with anybody except people in our home and our church. They find out they get up every morning at 645. They have jobs to do around the house. Then they have to make their bed. and uh, We have chapel twice a day. If they're not working, they have to go to chapel. They find out they get a job, and we help them get a job. And then they give us their paycheck. And we put it in the bank and uh, keep an account of it. And they get a gift card to Walmart for their personal expenses. They find out that the TV is allowed to watch some sports and some news, and that's about it. And you know what happens? They chafe under it. They get irritated by it. They rebel against it. And in essence, they say this, hey, I didn't come here to be treated like a three-year-old. I didn't come here for all this discipline. I came here for the discipleship program. Right. I don't want to get fancy on you. But let's see. Discipline. Discipleship. What are them two words that are all connected? Hey, you will never, never, as a body, as an individual, please God, unless you allow yourself to be placed under the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ and the discipline of the Word of God and the discipline of human leaders God places in authority in your life and the discipline of a local Bible-believing New Testament church. Christian life is a life of discipline. One more lesson. Christian life is a life of unity. All the army has to go every time, seven days, 13 times. Why? In the Bible, there is a concept, and I wish I could describe it more succinctly. I, I call it the multiplication of power. It goes like this, is the way I say it. As we add workers, God multiplies power. One of you shall chase a thousand, two of you shall put 10,000 to flight. And that formula with slightly different proportions is found at least five, six times in the Word of God. You add workers, I'll multiply power. It was a buzzword in the secular society about 25 years ago. It was called synergy. Remember, synergy. Synergy is divine, is what happens when the result of the combination is greater than the sum of the parts. You understand that? Would you explain it to me, please? <laughs> they took two horses. One horse by itself pulled 9,000 pounds. The other horse by itself pulled 8,000 pounds. They put them together in a harness. 
and you would logically imagine that together those two horses would pull 17,000 miles. They didn't. They pulled 33,000 pounds. The result of the combination, 33,000 pounds, was almost double the sum of the parts, 17,000 pounds. Now imagine what happens if the 8,000-pound horse stays home. He doesn't rob the master of 8,000 pounds of work. Now there's 9,000 pounds being pulled. He robbed him of 24,000 pounds worth of work. You find this concept in the book of Acts. They're all together in one accord. They're in one accord. They're all together in one accord. And here's what God says. You are tempted to think your little part of the ministry doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you show up for choir practice or not. Doesn't matter if you skip soul in one week. Doesn't matter if you do a half-hearted job preparing for your lesson. Doesn't matter if you don't invite anybody to the revival meeting, if you miss a night or two, if you don't pass out a tract, if you don't give to the next project. After all, your little bit doesn't matter. Oh, no, no, no. You see, when you invite people and they don't come, there are people that you didn't invite that do come that wouldn't have come if you hadn't invited the people that didn't come. When you give your little bit and others give their little bit. God multiplies his blessing. The Christian life is a life of unity. Now, unity is not unanimity. It's not everybody agreeing. Uh, when you build your next building, I'm sure you've handled this. Why has you done so well? But uh, I hope you're not dumb enough to let everybody have an individual vote on the color scheme. I want green, I want purple, I want red, I want pink, I want yellow, I want blue, I want orange. You'll either have a bunch of unhappy people or you'll be part of the Rainbow Baptist Church. No. We built a building in about 1984. Economy was bad. Auto industry was very weak. A lot of people laid off. We were not even making budget. And I felt we ought to go ahead and build a building. I got some advice, and I prayed about it. Key guys in the church were for it, making sure for it. We voted to build the building. And four people voted no, which was extremely unusual. It never happened. One couple voted no. They said, Preacher, we want the building, but we don't want to sell bonds. We want to borrow the money from the bank. It's hard work to sell bonds. Well, I agreed with them, but the bank did not. Because banks, if you haven't figured it out yet, are institutions that specialize in loaning money to people who can prove they don't need it. They voted no. Another couple voted no. Young couple. They said, preacher, we want to have the building. But you've already said we're not making budget. Why don't we wait? Don't build it now in the fall. Wait till spring. Things may ease up and be a little bit better. And they voted no. Alan Nora Breakfast Bar voted no because they didn't want to sell bonds. 
came and helped us sell bonds. And now, what is it, 39 years later, are still part of the First Baptist Church of Bridgeport. Their daughter is one of our secretaries. Steve and Debbie Evans, who voted no, because they didn't want to do it while we're tight financially, wanted to wait till spring, came out in the winter and helped us paint. Debbie Evans, one of our church secretaries, Steve Evans is our church treasurer. Their daughter, Samantha, is one of our school teachers. Her daughter-in-law is one of our school teachers. That is unity. Hey, I was able to express my thoughts. I had my input. And now, whether they thought like I thought or not, my job is to do all I can to make the work of God go forward and make that decision a success. Unity. Somebody said it like this. For the want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For the want of a horse, a general was lost. For the want of a general, a battle was lost. For the want of a battle, a war was lost. For the want of a war, a kingdom was lost. All for the want of a nail. Preached this sermon a few years ago in South Dakota. And a dear lady came to me and she said, you know what I took away from your sermon? I said, no, ma'am. She said, I'm going to be a nail in my place, doing my part, small though it may seem. Lord, speak to our hearts. Guide me as I extend the invitation.